1: Welcome to Western Civ, episode 193, Enemies and Friends. Last time, Luther went through the Diet of Worms, where he argued passionately for his new theology. While Luther carried the day with the common people, he did not with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who declared Luther an outlaw, making it a crime to offer him shelter or protection. The Elector, desperate to save Luther without making it obvious he had done so, orchestrated a fake kidnapping, secreting Luther off to the isolated castle at the Wartburg. But even without Luther to lead it, the Reformation was in full swing in Wittenberg. Theologians like Melanchthon, Zwilling, and Karlstedt pushed the boundaries of Luther's theology, attacking the sacrificial mass and the concept of begging monks. Overnight, it seemed like the Reformation might come to full fruition within the city of Wittenberg. Today, Luther pumps the brakes. So up until the last half of the previous episode, I did not mention Andreas Karlstad much, even though he was actually the chief debater during the Leipzig debates. And I'm not alone in this. Karlstad tends to get airbrushed out of most of Luther's biographies. For my part, I can tell you I removed him to keep the narrative going more smoothly and to make it an easier picture to understand. But now we're going to have to muck it up a bit. Karlstad initially idolized Luther. Karlstad, as I mentioned, was Luther's co-debater at Leipzig. It was Karlstad who first articulated the argument against monastic houses. And yet, tragically, the two fell out quickly after the Diet of Worms. The story of their tortured relationship not only explains what an emotional roller coaster the early Reformation was, but why Luther's theology took the path that it did. During Luther's time in the Wartburg, Karlstad played a major role in introducing the Reformation in Wittenberg. At first, however, Karlstad was the most cautious of the bunch. Karlstad consistently distanced himself from Melanchthon, whom Karlstad believed was going too far and too fast. In October 1521, during a disputation over the Mass, Karlstad took pains to ensure that all perspectives were represented. The Reformation, after all, according to him, was about having the kinds of dialogues that the Catholic Church never allowed. Or, so Karlstad believed... Karlstadt was trained in law, and he had more real-world experience than Melanchthon, which probably explains why he consistently favored a cautious approach. Seeing consequences, Melanchthon, in his exuberance, did not. For example, while Karlstadt in 1521 believed that the whole community needed to weigh in on the issue of private mass before any decision was reached, Melanchthon believed that should be dispensed with immediately. In November 1521, Carlstad published Regarding the Worship and the Homage of the Signs of the New Testament, in which he argued that Luther was right. Christ was present in the bread and the wine. Therefore, this was a key sacrament and not to be missed. However, Carlstad then hedged its bets ultimately setting him at odds with Luther. He argued that even though Christ was physically present in the Eucharist, we should honor the sacrament because of the spiritual presence of Christ. This set Karlstad on a course in which he would ultimately argue that the sacrament was a memorial act only, completely opposed to Martin Luther who did not take kindly to disagreement. Shortly before Christmas Day 1521, Karlstad announced he would be giving communion in both kinds. This was a serious step to take, since the shadow of Jan Hus still loomed large over the issue. Even the elector had made it clear he was opposed to communion in both kinds. The elector and Karlstad had had a strained relationship for a while now. Karlstad was constantly angling for more lucrative benefices and often found himself thwarted by the elector. To an extent, his decision to give communions in the two kinds was an effort to distance himself from Friedrich in the event that Wittenberg would be able to assert more independence. Yet given later events, I don't doubt for a moment that it was something that he believed in. But before we move forward, let's quickly jump back so we can understand Carlstadt and Luther's relationship a bit better. Karlstadt was three years younger than Luther, so certainly older than Melanchthon. Karlstadt arrived in Wittenberg in 1507, so well before Luther. He was a very well-known humanist in academic circles, and prior to 1517, was one of the most widely known people in Wittenberg. Between 1517 and 1521, however, Luther would completely eclipse Karlstadt in renown. The friendship between the two men began oddly. Karlstadt actually rushed to Leipzig in January 1517 after reading Luther's 95 Theses to purchase a copy of St. Augustine in the hope of refuting Luther. Instead, he discovered that Luther was right to reject scholasticism. Karlstad did not share Luther's early opposition to indulgences, though that may have been because a large chunk of his income came from the All Saints Foundation, which was supported generally via indulgences. Karlstad, however, took a firm line against the veneration of saints earlier than Luther. Moreover, Karlstad was much more anti-Roman than Luther, stemming from his personal interactions with papal staff, which were more extensive than Luther's interactions. This all underlines the reality that the Reformation really begins organically. In the beginning, only Melanchthon was concerned with crafting a consistent theology to deal with the myriad issues facing Luther at all. Everyone else, Luther, Karlstad, etc., simply dealt with issues as they happened to come up. The first fissure between Karlstad and Luther began in Leipzig in 1519. Karlstad, everyone agreed, lost his debate with Eck, infuriating Luther. Luther, also generally sidelined and or acted like Karlstad, wasn't there or didn't matter during the debate itself, which frustrated Karlstad. In terms of theology as well, Karlstad remained much more mystical than the intellectual Luther. Karlstad wrote a treatise on, and I didn't take German growing up, so I'm doing my best on these words, Gelhenheist, or the meditative letting go of human attachments in order to let God enter. This concept was deeply tied to his emotional experience of being saved, somewhat of the yin to his melancholy yang of dark anxiety and feelings of worthlessness. As he continued to write about and grapple with these feelings, his glass and heist took on a decidedly ascetic tone. He wrote, quote, All pleasure is sin. It is better for us were we to sprinkle food and drink with ashes than to have our food praised in song. The believer must develop a holy dread of themselves and become wholly ashamed of their thoughts, desires, and works as of a horrible vice, which I would avoid as one avoids a yellow, pus-filled boil." End quote. To Karlstad, understanding spirit was more important than understanding the word of God. Luther could not disagree more for Luther, it was the conviction that all our works are sinful, and that we are saved only by God's grace that gives us that sense of freedom. Luther argued asceticism was pointless, since it was not going to make God happy if you deprived yourself. You might as well enjoy good food and drink, which in his later life Luther certainly would. Stad's striving for his letting go or his glass and heist came pretty close to a willed state of perfection that Luther rejected, but which John Calvin would later espouse. Luther blamed Karlstad for setting up, just like the monks, a new kind of mortification that is self-chosen, putting to the death of flesh. Karlstad wholeheartedly tied himself to the vision of creating the Christian city of Wittenberg. He believed he was experiencing in Wittenberg in 1521 the final triumph of the gospel. He wanted to dispel all the trappings of papistry. He officiated, dressed in lay clothing, and when the communion wafer was dropped not once but twice during service, he just told the person to pick it up. As a quick aside, they didn't. Luther was still preaching that the host was actually a part of Christ and even the evangelicals were not willing to cross that bridge yet. So, Karlstad had to bend over and pick it up. Both times. On New Year's Day, he celebrated Mass with communion in both kinds, and this time a thousand people came. But this was small potatoes compared to the bigger news back from December 26, 1521. Karlstad had decided to marry. His bride was Anna von Macau, And though Luther was still in the Wartburg, Melanchthon attended. The idea of a priest marrying and keeping a wife open was radically new, though you will no doubt recall that Pope Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia, did just that during his time as Pope. Still, outside Rome, wives who lived with priests were shunned and not considered members of polite society. And, in fact, even now, not everyone celebrated this wedding. A pamphlet of a mock wedding mass circulated around this time, calling Karlstad, quote, a fisherman of wives, a clear allusion to Christ admonishing his disciples to be fishers of men. The pace of reform in Wittenberg continued to accelerate. On January the 6th, 1522, the Augustinian order met in Wittenberg, and Luther had written to them, entreating them to go along with the reforms in the town, though it became clear later on that Luther didn't realize the extent of reforms in his absence. But the Augustinians listened. They voted that anybody who wished to leave the order could. Begging would be forbidden, and masses for the dead henceforth abolished. And Karlstad had continued his own personal reformation. Now setting his sights on Christian images. He wrote passionately about what was wrong with Christian images quote, Our eyes make love to the images and court them. The truth is that all those who honor images seek their help and worship them. These are all whores and adulterers. Quote. Now, not to give too much away, but Karlstad's view of the veneration of images absolutely foreshadows the Calvinist view that's coming down the pipeline. And that will also lead to the destruction of centuries of Christian art in some places. Karlstad also continued to write against begging, which was a strong stance to take in a university town that probably depended a lot on donations to survive. But Wittenberg was facing a lot of bigger issues. At first, Luther's success was a boon for the university, and hundreds of university students flocked to his school. So many, in fact, that they couldn't find anywhere to house them all, and students were stuck standing in the hallway to hear Melanchthon preach. But then something curious happened. Luther's assault on the mass and contemporary theology left many students wondering what the point of a degree in the subject was. Neither priests nor university men had a monopoly on religious truth any longer. Anyone could interpret the Bible. Moreover, if students could not beg for money, then most couldn't support themselves. The result was that, in Wittenberg as well as across the empire, student enrollment in universities collapsed. The University of Grifswald, as an example, had to close its doors for a generation— Luther and Karlstad also differed sharply in their views of power and authority. For Luther, power came from above. It was natural that power be vested in the emperor and the princes directly from God, and that the common man obeys. Karlstad, conversely, trusted in more of what we might call democratic forms of government, specifically the town council. Now, Carlstead had worked with these lay people for years by 1521, and he no doubt respected them, another factor in why he might skew that direction. He applauded when the Wittenberg town council passed a poor relief law in January 1522. He thought this was a genius first step, and frankly, many components of the law read as very practical even today. For example, in addition to supporting the poor, money was to be used to subsidize loans for newlyweds and craftspeople. Emboldened, neither Karlstad nor the town council stopped there. The council passed laws to close the town brothel, and then went further. It declared that communion in bread and wine should be consistently given to lay people at the Mass. Think for a moment. What a momentous step that was. Would a town council five years earlier have even thought about defying the Roman Catholic Church? And yet, in only five short years, people seem to have determined that they should get to choose the tenets of their faith based on their own opinions and readings of the Bible, not have it handed down to them. These actions were clearly going to displease Friedrich the Elector. Yet, the town council had them published anyway an indication of the level of risk everyone now seemed willing to take. In late January and early February 1522, representatives from the town and the electors sat down to see if they could hash out agreements on some of these issues to keep a reformation going that everybody could live with. They agreed as follows. Part of the Mass would be in German. It would also be stated clearly that Mass was not a sacrifice. The priest would give communion to the parishioner, quote, according to their wishes, end quote, and the poor law would remain in place. This agreement cleverly sidesteps the issue as to whether or not communion would be in the one kind or the two, leaving it up to the parishioner. The elector happy, and it looked as though the Reformation in Wittenberg was secure. However, the Catholic side had not been idle. Duke George of Saxony, the elector's cousin, successfully lobbied the imperial court to get involved. On January 20, 1522, an imperial mandate declared the rights of local Catholic bishops to conduct quote-unquote visitations in all their parishes and punish everyone who wasn't Towing the line. The elector now had to choose between supporting the Reformation in Wittenberg and potentially losing his dukedom. It would be easy, after all, for the emperor to just transfer his rights to his cousin, as is actually going to happen in 1547. But for now, the elector switched sides and revoked the agreement with Wittenberg. And Luther. Supported him. While that might seem strange, there are two factors at play here. First is Luther's view of power, which again was top-down. Luther did not like the idea of independent communes making their own rules. That, in his mind, wasn't the way it worked. So, all this reform? Well, it should have come from the elector it was not sufficient for him to just rubber-stamp the agreement after the fact. Second, as I alluded to before, Luther did not agree with all these reforms. And so when he returned to Wittenberg on March the 6th, he was ready to support the elector and turn back the clock. As an aside the Elector still could not be seen quote-unquote allowing Luther to return. So they cooked up this story about somehow Luther escaping from wherever it was he was hiding and he got back to Wittenberg without the Elector's permission. Luther wrote an open letter to this effect. They had it printed, sent out, and I guess that resolved the matter to everyone's satisfaction. Luther, on March the 9th, back in Wittenberg, began to preach a series of eight sermons, known as the Invocavit Sermons, determined to reinstate his authority. Sure, he admitted anybody could teach about the right words or phrases from the Bible to use, but Scripture remained the sole authority on all matters of theology. Luther went on, reminding everyone that he was the first reformer,, quote, "Therefore, dear brothers, follow me. I was the first whom God placed on this arena. It was also me to whom God's first revealed to preach these words End quote." He said those who wanted to make radical changes to religion forgot that first you raise children on milk, then pap, then soft eggs, and then soft food." one should not move too quickly or aggressively. The events in Wittenberg that march are really revealing as to an important aspect of Luther's character. He might rail against the authorities, he did it a lot. But time and time again, Luther, in the end, would always align himself with the princes. While Luther had been growing uncomfortable with Karlstad for some time, he wanted Melanchthon to take the lead in Wittenberg. Now, to be fair, prior to March 1522, there's no real indication of a major rift between Luther and Karlstad, at least not until after Luther returned to Wittenberg. From that point onwards, the narrative is consistent. According to Luther... It was all Karlstad and Zwilling's fault. They had both overreached and overly excited the population through their preaching. The course correction that had to take place concerned those two bad apples and them alone, period. Zwilling rapidly fell into line and recanted. That left Karlstad with his head in the proverbial noose. Quickly, he found himself banned from preaching, a ban which went from temporary to permanent within days. Frankly, I cannot escape the obvious conclusion that Karlstad just became a convenient scapegoat for all of this. Luther wanted to be in the elector's favor, and putting all the blame on Karlstad allowed him to do that and distance himself from his former friend. There's something a little bit unsettling about Luther here. Karlstad was one of his first allies. He was his friend. Sure, maybe they had not communicated much over the past year, and maybe he had overstepped, but should not Karlstad be allowed to recant like Zwilling? Very soon, however, Luther was equating Karlstad with the devil. Luther believed it was Satan who, in the shape of Dr. Karlstad, had come to destroy the Reformation. This is pretty brutal vitriol. And Luther also originally approved many of the changes that Karlstad made, don't forget. Things like communion in the two kinds, and a German liturgy, to say just a few. In fact, Luther's German liturgy, which would be formalized in 1526, was barely different from Karlstad's. Plus, the two men agreed on Eucharist in principle, at least for now. So in terms of changes, once Luther was back, he dispensed with letting the laity touch the host and forbid priests from wearing lay clothing. But that was about it. So why such a commotion? Luther seems to have now grasped a key difference between himself and Karlstad. Luther realized that he and his former friends were now on different theological paths. Sure, on the surface, their attitude toward the sacrament of communion were the same. But, underneath, they had taken very different means to get there, Karlstad's being essentially mystical in nature. Luther saw the cracks in the foundation that Karlstadt may not have at the time, and he was right. In only two years, Carlstead would argue that Christ's presence in the Eucharist was spiritual only. A complete break with Martin Luther. And again, I know this all sounds so academic and pedantic to us now the distinction between spiritual and physical presence. But at the time, this was a life or death question. For millions of Europeans. People were willing to fight and die for it. Certainly Luther was. Still, upon his return to Wittenberg, Luther couldn't literally turn back time. The monks weren't coming back. The begging ordinance was here to stay. And most important, all those destroyed Christian images were gone. What Luther was able to control was how the Reformation was going to proceed going forward. There weren't going to be any more town councils calling the shots. This was going to be a princely Reformation. A Reformation where change came from the top down as it was supposed to, not the bottom up. Critically for Martin Luther... This was a Reformation that he, no one else, was in charge of. The princes would institute changes as he directed, and there would be no democracy in the process. One of the aspects of the Reformation that gives it such unique flavor, depending upon where you are, is that so many religious leaders like Luther are going to do this. Whether we're talking about Zwingli or Calvin or Karlstad or even Thomas Cranmer, with you know old Henry VIII, who we'll get to, the Reformation is so much based on the personalities at play. Still, I don't want to discount for a second how prudent this all was on Luther's part. If Luther had not walked back the Wittenberg Reformation then the Elector would have been toast. The Duke of Saxony, his cousin George, would have been given his lands, and the stridently Catholic Duke would have snuffed the Reformation out before it had a chance. Was Luther difficult to work with? Yes. Was he always right? Certainly not. But in this instance, his decision saved the Reformation. But the idea of a communal reformation was not dead. This is one of those genies that you just can't put back in the bottle. In town after town, from Zwickau, Augsburg, and Nuremberg, popular movements brought in the reformation. All the actions that galvanized the people of Wittenberg were repeated throughout the empire. Chalices were destroyed, altarpieces torn down. Evangelicals interrupted sermons. Luther could put the brakes on the process in Wittenberg, but he was powerless to do anything about the wider movement. And this did hurt Luther. By siding with the authorities, Luther had played his hand. Now all these cities, including nominally Lutheran Nuremberg, just did what they wished without seeking his advice. Clearly, they didn't seem the world in the same way as Luther, and so they weren't interested in what he had to say. Luther never understood communal values or communal politics. The idea of compromise and brotherhood was alien to him. There was no compromising with the devil. When Luther returned from the Wartburg, he was even more convinced that he was part of a grand cosmic battle being waged between God and Lucifer himself. To be on God's side meant to be on Luther's side. Everyone else was with Satan. Luther's vision after his time in the Wartburg is increasingly narrow. He had faced down all the princes of the empire. But from 1522 onward, what he seemed to care about most wasn't Germany, but small backwater Wittenberg. Events between Karlstad and Luther reached their crescendo on August twenty-second, 1524, during their infamous meeting at the Black Bear Inn in Jena, well within Saxony. The two men met around 10 in the morning, surrounded by Saxon court officials. Luther wanted the meeting to be witnessed. Karlstad went first. He accused Luther of trying to lump him in with Thomas Munzer, a radical preacher who advocated not only religious, but social change as well. Karlstad complained that those accusations were false. He might not hold the same view any longer with Luther on the Eucharist, and Karlstad didn't at this point, but he certainly did not agree with Munzer's radical positions. Karlstad also complained that Luther had effectively censored him, prevented him from preaching and publishing, Angry, Karlstad said, "...was I not bound and struck when you alone wrote, printed, and preached against me, and arranged that my books were taken from the press, and that I was forbidden to write and preach?" The two former friends argued for a long time, sometimes falling completely silent for significant periods of time. Luther taunted Karlstad that he didn't have the guts to attack Luther in public, Carlstad countered that Luther had effectively prevented him from doing so, banning his preaching and his books. Luther then took out a coin, a gilder, and presented it to Carlstad as a token by which Luther was guaranteeing Carlstad's right to speak against Luther, if that was what he wanted to do. Carlstad bent the coin and declared, quote, Dear brothers, this is a sign, a pledge, that I have the authority to write against Dr. Luther, end quote. Taking a coin like this was actually a big deal in the 16th century. Contracts were often agreed to in this fashion. Marriage deals could be brokered this way. But interestingly, both men came out of the meeting with two very different views as to what the coins symbolized. To Luther, this meant a formal indication of a feud. To Karlstad, it signified his right to publish. It didn't have to come to this, of course. After his rebuke in 1522, Carlstad tried to keep a low profile. He went back to his post as archdeacon and tried to resume his academic life, though Melanchthon and others shunned him. Slowly, his isolation began to wear on him, and Carlstad took increasingly grim views of the university life and increasingly radical views in his theology. More and more, Carlstad felt like he needed to get out of Wittenberg. Ironically, the man who had once insisted on fancy clothes and his noble lineage— now wanted nothing more than to retire to the countryside and live as a mere peasant. He toyed with the idea of becoming a vintner. He had grown up in a wine-producing region, but instead decided to just become an ordinary priest. Karlstad was careful and meticulous, taking his time to clear all this with church authorities and with the elector. But in May of 1523, he took up a clerical position in the tiny hamlet of Orlemond. When he got to Orlemond, it was clear from the start that Karlstad's mystical theology had changed a lot between March 1522 and May 1524. He now held services exclusively in German. He translated psalms from Hebrew for the whole congregation to sing. According to sources, these quote-unquote songs were terrible, but at least he was trying to involve the congregation more in the service. Detached from Luther, Karlstad's theology also grew more independent. Now he preached openly that Christ was only spiritually present in the Eucharist, not physically so. As he put it, bread is what you get in the baker's shop. It isn't Christ. And dangerously, he also exchanged letters with Thomas Munzer. Thomas Munzer would become Luther's most hated opponent during this period, certainly. He was born in Stolberg and probably came from a family of goldsmiths or minters. He had spent some months in Wittenberg in the fall of 1517, and that was where he met Karlstad. That being said, how much Munzer was influenced by Luther remains unclear even though he should have been in Wittenberg when Luther posted his 95 Theses. Eventually, Munzer wound up in Zuckau, about 40 miles directly south of Leipzig. There, he developed a much more radical view of the Reformation. By 1521, Munzer was in Prague and convinced of his own martyrdom. Many of Munzer's actions can be explained by the fact He believed both his own martyrdom to be nigh, as well as the end of days. Munzer kept moving until he secured a position in the tiny town of Alstedt in the spring of 1523. There, he established a printing press and set about publishing his ideas. Munzer wasn't willing to wait. He wanted immediate action. He wanted town councils to have the right not only to establish theology, but radically remake society in an egalitarian fashion. Luther was utterly opposed to his views, linking Munzer with violence and rebellion, words designed to get the German princes to stand up and pay attention. As was his usual tact, Luther likened Munzer to the devil, Events in Alstead quickly got out of hand. Convinced that the end of days was coming, Munzer did not object when some parishioners set fire to a nearby pilgrimage chapel. It is unclear if Munzer was behind the arson, but he believed the chapel was idolatrous regardless and did nothing to search for the perpetrators. In July of 1524, Munzer called on his supporters to form a new league. This league would replace all previous allegiances, binding rural peasants, townsfolk, and princes alike into a new covenant with God. This was absolutely revolutionary. In one moment, Munzer had overcome class antagonism in favor of a sense of communal belonging. At this point, the ducal official stepped in, shutting down Munzer's printing press, forbidding him from preaching, and disbanding the League. Munzer, feeling that Alsted could no longer protect him, fled for the small imperial town of Mulhausen. During this time, one key difference between Karlstadt and Munzer became evident. While Carlstedt completely believed in nonviolence, he was consistent on this. Munzer was more than willing to use the sword to accomplish his means. And that kind of brings us up to pace to where we are at this meeting at the Black Bear Inn on August 22nd, 1524, between Carlstedt and Luther. But of course, The antagonism between the two did not end that day. Mounting the pulpit to preach the following morning, Luther found a smashed crucifix waiting for him, a clear signal that he was not welcome. Karlstad walked away from the Blackberry and confident that he had won the right to publish, and he intended to use that right immediately. Setting out to rally support, Carlstad now signed all his letters and tracts. quote, Andrew Karlstad, exiled on account of the truth without a hearing, end quote. Any elation he felt was short-lived. On September the 24th, barely a month after the meeting, Friedrich the Elector summoned Karlstad to Weimar and informed him that he was banished. Immediately. Karlstad would spend the next several years traveling the empire in search of somewhere where he could put down roots. In search of somewhere to put down roots. And his writing, of course. Karlstad took Luther's permission to write, which is, again, what he felt like Luther meant, and he ran with it. He printed and published seven tracks in Basel alone, well beyond Luther's reach. Karlstad now wrote freely that the Eucharist was Christ in spirit only. Ironically, the rumors in Germany at the time were that these were actually Luther's views, and that Karlstad was publishing them as a kind of cat's paw, until Luther felt confident enough in his own position to join him. There's actually evidence for this. Luther at the time did write, quote, I confess that if Dr. Karlstad or someone else had been able to instruct me five years ago that there was nothing but bread and wine in the sacrament, he would have done me a great service. I suffered such great temptations at that time and twisted and struggled because I saw well that this would have been the biggest coup against the papacy. End quote. What did Luther mean by this? He does seem to be agreeing with Karlstad here. Or is it as he alludes, and he only meant to use the sacrament as a weapon against Rome? To me, that seems unlikely for a man so confident in his own beliefs. Look, there are going to be a lot of people in the Reformation who make choices for political reasons. We'll start to meet them very soon. But Luther... Was not one of them. Now, in the end, I chalk this comment up to the fact that the Reformation was so young at this point, and everyone was still figuring it out. It would not be for several years until Melanchthon would finally hammer out exactly what was Lutheranism. And by the way, major humanists, all the way from Nuremberg to the Netherlands, agreed with Karlstad. In many ways, Luther was the odd man out on the issue. Karlstad was the one gaining support, and telling everyone the only reason Luther banished him was that he could not best him with scripture. It's worth pointing out that Luther's position on the Eucharist was shaped solely by his belief Christ was present physically in the Eucharist because he believed that he was. It was mysticism at its finest. So Luther really couldn't beat Karlstad on this issue using scripture alone. Indeed, many people found Karlstad's explanation of the sacrament to be more persuasive, that Christ was spiritually, not physically present. One of the most interesting what-ifs of the Reformation, certainly the early Reformation, would be if Karlstad had set himself up as a rival to Luther, would Karlstad have become Zwingli or even Calvin? It's really interesting to think of what might have happened then because maybe Nuremberg and not Geneva would have become the epicenter of the Reformation going forward. But he never did. Karlstad always studiously considered himself to be Luther's acolyte. Even when they were fighting, he was never willing to break completely with his old friend. Had he, the Reformation might have come out quite differently. As it were, back in Switzerland, Zwingli was denying Christ's physical presence in the bread and wine at the same time. For the rest of his life, Luther would write about Karlstedt and Munzer as swarmers, literally swarmers, buzzing around, driven mad by spirit. He would never forgive his former friend. And Karlstedt, well, he could finally retire as a peasant, as he once intended. He wrote, quote, Would to God that I were a real peasant, field laborer, or craftsman. That I might eat my bread in obedience to God, i.e. in the sweat of my brow. Instead, I have eaten from the poor people's labors, whom I have given nothing in return. I had no right to this, nor could I protect them in any way. Nonetheless, I took their labors into my house. If I could, I should like to return to them everything I took. End quote. In 1524, not only was Karlstad idealizing peasant life, he was recognizing how complicit he had been as a priest in taking advantage of the poor. For him, the Reformation had become nothing less than a movement of liberation of the common people from Rome and all wicked authority. And as we'll see next week, he wasn't alone in that position. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe. We have tons more content at westernsippodcast.com link in the show notes. If you're able, always appreciate supporting the show financially. You can donate on the website or become a patron. And for $2 a month, you support the show and get access to over 100 hours of bonus content with three to four new hours of content every single month.